0: Kia ora, I'm John O'Hare and welcome to the first season of the Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga podcast. Whether you're intrigued by the stories behind New Zealand's archaeology, the wonder of our collections or the history and culture of our places, the Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga podcast series offers you a new way to experience heritage in the digital age. Dr Glenn Hazelton is the Director of Organisational Development for Heritage New Zealand Taonga. In his role, Glenn spearheads the organisation's future-focused team who work to ensure Heritage New Zealand Taonga continues to learn, develop and innovate its services to remain at the forefront of positive heritage outcomes. This includes communications and marketing, along with a range of business development initiatives. One of the most recent projects Glenn has been closely involved in has been the development of a new resource entitled Saving the Town. Here, councils, owners, investors, developers, indeed anyone who has an interest in seeing heritage buildings flourish, will find a treasure trove of case studies, ideas and advice on how to make built heritage survive and thrive in the modern world. Glenn joins me now. Glenn, talk to us about Saving the Town. What is it and why is it so important? Saving the town
1: is a project that we've been working on for a couple of years. Really, most simply, it's a toolkit to uh, for small towns and cities to think about how they can save their heritage buildings, to put them to new uses, and to use them as something that supports their um, economic, social, cultural development of those places. Um, and why is it important? Well, I guess over the last last 10 years really, there's been a number of um, challenges for uh, heritage buildings and for smaller towns and cities. Um, And a lot of those challenges sort of come together. And you think about um, a number of small towns that they've had, you know, the the outcomes of the earthquakes, new legislation, there's changes around things like urbanisation, you know, people moving away from smaller towns, um, and often they've really struggled to find ways to keep their economic uh, keep the heritage buildings there economically viable. And so this toolkit is really just a whole lot of ideas that have been pulled together from other parts of the country in places where they have had some successes. So sort of give um, those places some ideas around, hey, try some of these different things and these might work. It's not one size fits all. it very much recognizes that each place will have different dynamics. Um, and it's really just trying to give people a little bit of inspiration um, around what some of those things that might work might be. Um, and also, you know, be a bit optimistic about things. Um, you know, it's often doom and gloom out there. And I think particularly after you know, the additional challenges that we've had over the last couple of months with COVID-19, I think it it might be a resource that lots of places can you know, can
0: get some value out of. There's obviously a need for this information. Has there been a building or a project in particular that has inspired this resource? I think
1: uh, for, for me, it was a lot of the work that we did in Dunedin around the warehouse precinct. Um, you know, For people that aren't familiar with that, there was an, an area of um, Dunedin that had basically every possible challenge that you could think of um, stacked against it so I started um, my job down there at the council in 2009 and at that time it was sort of an area of the city where basically every building looked derelict in some way there was very few tenants remaining there a lot of buildings had been empty and empty for quite significant amounts of time you know some Buildings hadn't had tenants for ten or twenty years, you know, and they hadn't been maintained that time. So the whole area was was yeah, you know, it looked terrible, um, but it was also you know the underlying conditions were really really bad. Now some of the challenges that we were facing there is um, the zoning of the entire area was was one that just made it practically impossible for the types of businesses that were suited to the buildings to actually get a consent to be in that space. So, you know, you had a, a zoning um, framework through RMA that just did not work for that area. Um, we also had the underlying land tenure was problematic and that lots of the buildings were on leasehold land, which you, know, you talk to many people and they say, oh, it's just a, you know, no one's gonna invest in something that's leasehold. Uh, we had a uh, you know, lack of tenants, as I said, you know, a low growth economy at the time in Dunedin, that there'd been a gradual shift also of economic vitality from one end of the city to the other. This was in the wrong end of the city, if you like. Um, we had then, um, not long after we started, the Christchurch earthquakes, which then meant banks didn't want to lend on heritage buildings, insurers wouldn't cover them if you can't get you know insurance you can't get a loan if you can't get a loan you can't do the building up you know what we're going to do um and also you know just some really unsympathetic choices over time had been made a- around things like roading you know sticking state highway through the area and that sort of thing so you know we looked at that and we thought god like th- there's no chance like these buildings are doomed you know that that's how it felt and that's how for a couple of decades for many people it had felt but what we did have was some really, really enthusiastic owners um, who were starting to come into the area. They were buying the buildings up quite cheap, um, but they wanted to work with council. So they kept approaching council and saying, we want to work together. Can we, can we find a different way for this area, to for its future to, to go? Um, and we were lucky that at the time we just had a change of council. So we had a a set of councillors who were more keen to explore different ideas. Um, and we started looking at what are some of the things that were working other places. And we just started trialling some small things. Now, the upshot of that project is that the warehouse precinct in Dunedin now is one of the most successful parts of the central city. Um, it's become hugely sought after. The, the attitudes towards heritage across the city as a result have really changed because... When you have that opportunity to say to people, "Hey, look, you know, like this. Look at all the things that were stacked against the building owners in this area, and look what they've done." Then you know it, it means you can. You know, when someone else in a better part of town, they think, "Oh, actually, maybe I can do something. Maybe I can take some inspiration from that. If they can do it, surely I can do it." Um, and you know, it's it's a hugely vibrant part of the city now. Now, the important point for me in that is also we did try lots of different things. And the things that we were proposing in the beginning are not what happened in that area in the end. You know, we didn't get completely stuck on this is going to be the use. This is what is going to happen. You've got to leave that space for these things to happen organically. But I think what's um, what's really interesting is to see the way people filled the space, the way that it actually works. And now... It's become something that is really different for, from the rest of the city. So we've tried to use some of those lessons in this toolkit. And then in looking at other places, you see that there's actually lots of different roads that you can take to success. It's not all, let's replicate Dunedin, because what works in Dunedin isn't going to work somewhere else. Just like you know, when we were looking at our case studies, we drew on some ideas from other places. Some of those things just didn't work for us. Um, so it's, it's, this is what the toolkit's trying to pull together, is lots of these different diverse stories from around the country for people to sort of pick and mix and try things and, um, and take some inspiration from
0: that. There's a phrase used in Saving the Town which I really like. You talk about rolling out the red carpet, not the red tape. This is clearly an approach that engages with people. It's a different approach.
1: Well, yeah, it is. And I think that's where, you know, where the toolkit comes in use for places like councils, is that councils and, and other organisations that you know, that could help often haven't been in the space of helping. They've, you know, they're, they're more seen as a hindrance to getting things done. And I remember when some of the first building owners came to us from the warehouse precinct, they were saying, look, we've been trying to work with council for years and years and years, and no one has been helpful. We get pushed around different parts of the organization. There's no one person that's kind of helping us through the process. You know, you'll go in and building consents department will tell you one thing, the resource consents department will tell you something else. You know, if you're putting in a cafe, the health people will tell you something, transport will tell you something different. And people got really frustrated with how, because often those things conflicted as well. And they were like, how am I supposed to solve all these things? Um, and, you know, often solving those things meant getting in a really expensive planner or project manager on their side to try and work through those things. And basically what we found is that by changing the way we interacted with customers um, and um, rate payers down there, we could change that really easily. And that's where the rolling the red carpet came out. And it was um, actually something that our chief executive at the time um, that she coined, and it was really important around, we understand that heritage building owners have so many challenges on their plate anyway because of the nature of the buildings that they're working with that coming to council and trying to work with council to find solutions shouldn't be another burden for them. It should be as easy as possible for them. So what, we, what my role down there really developed into was trying to coordinate all of those different people And doing simple things like a consent working group, when someone comes in, um, you know, to talk about their project, that we got all of those different departments in the organisation around the table, and we sat there and spoke with one voice to that owner. Often we'd do some work in the background to make sure that, you know, if we needed to find some type of um, resolution between two different parts of council, that we did that before we met with the owner so that we had one answer to them. Um, that was really important often around things like um, yeah. transport and stuff like that, where you know transport department say, we need this. And if you did that, you'd ruin the building. Um, and so what we'd find is, let's find the, the little compromises that we can make. But what it meant is that the building owner, you know, they had a clear direction from us. They had a single point of contact that was kind of like their advocate as well within council. And it just helped smooth those processes. And you had lots of people coming back and saying, you know, like I'd come in many times and, you know, I'd just given up on doing projects because it was just too difficult. And actually by simplifying just one part of that whole equation, it, it made them feel a lot better about you know, how smoothly that process could go also made them feel really valued as well, that they were someone special to the council. Because, you know, often, you know, lots of organisations say, oh, we value our heritage, we think it's great, but that doesn't always trickle down all of the levels to make the owners feel that way. And this was just one way to do that. So that's, this is, you know, one of the chapters in the toolkit, looks at, you know, red carpet, not red tape, and how you can, lots of different things that people can do to make things easier for owners.
0: There seems to be an element of give and take here, and that sometimes sacrifices might be made with certain parts of the building to get a viable building at the end of it. Has this approach led to good heritage outcomes, in your opinion? I think it has. I mean, the, I
1: always like to look at things in the whole and think about, you know, what's what's what would likely be the outcome if we don't make some of these compromises? And, um, you know, sitting on the other side of the table now with Heritage New Zealand, you know, at the time we had a really great relationship with Heritage New Zealand when I was at the council down there. And a lot of that was also having Heritage New Zealand at those case meetings as well. Or when we go out and do a site visit, we were doing those jointly so that we could start talking through what those issues were, what, you know, what good advice would be. And think about, like, that whole package And there's numerous cases that that I can think of down there where you go on site with a building owner and you think there's some compromises we have to make here but if we don't make some of these compromises the outcome is going to be that either the building's going to be demolished or the building's going to be left without a tenant and that that will lead to demolition by neglect because there won't be any money coming in there won't be enough money to maintain the building and there's no great heritage outcome in that Either, And we'd seen over the course of, you know, probably the decade before I started working in Dunedin, maybe a little bit longer, a number of buildings come down because of demolition by neglect. And when you get to a point that the building is so bad, you know, in terms of its condition, um, that councils, you know, got to a point where they basically have to say yes to demolishing it because it's either unsafe or the costs have become just far too much to bring it back to life. Yeah, you know, there's no good heritage outcome there, and we were losing too many good buildings that you thought, yeah. shoot, you know, that would have been something we could have saved. So yes, I think you know, I always look at the big picture of you know what does saving this building mean, and often you know we get into situations where I can think of one where we had a building that wasn't listed, we wanted to have it listed in our district plan and protected. The owner wanted to do some work on it. Um, and we worked with them through that work, gave them the confidence that actually we could work together in a collaborative way. They got a great outcome we They made some changes to their plans because of suggestions we made we you know had some compromises um, and some areas where we did have discretion at council over how we interpreted the rules and you interpret them one way and it's positive. interpret them another way it's you know not going to work out so well but we came up with a really good situation in the end, that building owner was you know had a really great asset. the key heritage um, fabric of the building was protected more than probably would have been protected um, either if the changes hadn't happened or uh, if they'd just gone ahead you know and pushed forward themselves and we got to list the building um, you know, and the owner agreed to that list you know they offered the building up to be yeah. protected, so you know, there are ways I think to turn what can sometimes be, you know, uh, challenges in a project, they actually become quite good um, outcomes at the end. And I think, you know, heritage-wise, in terms of the fabric, so much more of that building is protected now than even I would have probably thought was possible at the beginning. What do you
0: think heritage buildings give a community?
1: I think there's a number of things. And I think um, more and more we're seeing that. I think, um, you know, identity is one, you know, I also think yeah a lot of places it does create a point of difference for these particularly for smaller places. I've done a bit more traveling around New Zealand over the last couple of years and and places that I'd not been before you kind of get there and you see the buildings and and you're, oh these heritage buildings, but they are often quite different than other places, and it's it gives you a sense of place that's different, that, you know, something unique. And I think that's really something that a lot of places can build on. A lot of places are doing that really successfully. I think the last thing you want is that, you know, you go through places and you think, God, oh, this looks like just like the last place I drove through 100Ks ago, you know, because they're so bland. And I think that's where the heritage can add a lot. I think it also gives people a sense of, um, like it anchors some people as well, you know, in a, in a world that's changing so much having that familiarity, and that's something that I noticed, you know, in times that I've gone back to Christchurch, is, um, you know, if, just as an outsider, I know that many people in town, you know, feel differently about it, but I'd go there and I'd miss the icons that I knew, the, that I'd lost yeah. that sense of, familiar you know, I'd even get lost trying to go to certain places, because I couldn't, you know, the building on the corner that I knew so well had gone, or, and it, it, you kind of do lose that, um, and I think that can, be, that can be a real sense of anchoring. I like to think of them as as a great canvas from which to build a a really interesting identity for places. So I'm also someone that's, I love new architecture as well, as long as it's good architecture. And I think that's what the key is here, is marrying those two things together well. Um, The last thing you you, want to see is just big boring boxes everywhere. Um, you know, with the same types of shops and you just think, gosh, this is this place is the same as everywhere else. So, and I think heritage encourages, because of the nature of those buildings, it encourages different types of uses and different types of retail or different types of businesses that might go in there. And I think that, that that's what gives that
0: distinctiveness to places. And there are economic opportunities in these points of difference too, aren't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think... You know, you look around the, the world at places that people want to go to, to visit, you know, and this is going to be so important in sort of the post-COVID situation. You know, what are those towns that you're going to want to visit as a as a domestic tourist? What are the places that people want to move? You know, we've seen over the last few years more people, you know, priced out of the markets you know, for housing in some big place, you know, some of the biggest cities, moving, moving to smaller places now and I can think of an example of someone that um, moved out of Auckland and set up this, uh, you know, their business in Whanganui, and you know took a heritage building to do it, put their apartments and and did you know, an incredible job for something that would cost them less than a house in Auckland would. You know, so it's about attracting people to these places as well. You can have, you know, if you've got different types of businesses, a a, a great lifestyle that you can have there and it's cheaper than the big cities, I think there's, there's great opportunities there for, for people. Um, yeah, and I think more and more, yeah, we've seen it over the last couple of months, people can work successfully from home. You don't need to necessarily always be in the office. Um, and if, if you've said, well, are you going to move out of one of the big cities? Well, where are you going to go? Well, it's probably going to be something that you find really interesting as the place that you're going to go. And heritage yes. will often be a part of
0: that. And there are obviously flow-on economic benefits associated with that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key for me is also you you need to look at what's going to work for each place in terms of its economy. Um, There's no point in trying to set up exactly the same thing that someone else has set up. And you look at little towns around New Zealand that quite a few of them have become quite, um, just organically have become little hotspots for certain things. Um, and you know like certain like businesses have attracted them and i think that's what this tool could also encourages people to do is to think about what is your point of difference what are the types of things that might be bubbling around in the background that don't have a, a place or a home yet and that's something that we found in um in Dunedin with the warehouse precinct lots of people kept saying oh you're going to set up something that's going to compete with other parts of the city so all you're going to do is you know to solve your issues around a lack of tenants here, you're going to steal them from somewhere else and what we actually found there was a few people that, as it became more popular, moved from other parts of the city. But the vast majority of businesses that started up in that area were um, new businesses to the city, um, new businesses being established by people who no. had had like a little you know home business that had expanded. Um, or people that had never actually found the right place for their business, so they didn't want a a shop on George Street, um, you know, the main yeah. retail street, because that wasn't quite their, building, their their business's identity. But they couldn't find the type of space. And I remember talking to one of the cafe owners who moved into the area and saying, "You know, why did you choose?" She was one of the first in there, and she said, well, "I said, why did you come to you? Know, what what made you think about this?" See, well, I couldn't, A, couldn't find the space that I had in my head. Like, that wasn't anywhere else at the moment. Then I found this building, and it was exactly that. I had a, um, a landlord who was willing to work with me to create what my vision was. And I wanted to be someone that was leading out something different. Um, so in that era, in the warehouse precinct, you know, initially we thought, oh, it's going to be like lots of tech businesses that might find these spaces really interesting or education or something like that in the end so many of them have been food related and not just at the cafe end but sort of production of food boutique brewer- breweries you know um, organic stuff um, caterers all that kind of and it's it's not what we expected but they didn't have a place previously they didn't have their own hub in the city before they've now sort of conglomerated together and that's what it's become and it's and I think lots of small places can learn from that as well. Is that often there might be businesses opportunities bubbling away in the background that actually just need you to create the space for them, and
0: then they'll occupy it. Getting now to some of the specific challenges heritage buildings present, in your experience, what are some of these, and how does saving the town address them?
1: I think uh,
0: looking at your know, individual challenges that
1: um, buildings have, um, yeah. You know, they're many the same across the country, you know, it's it's the need to strengthen the building earthquake strengthening wise, the costs of upgrade, whether that's seismic, whether that's fire, whether that's, you know, any of the other types of building act ones, the the then comparably what a tenant can pay for that building long term, um, you know, whether the rental rates are enough to cover um the investment that you need to make into it. Um, and just you know things like changing retail. You know we we don't have as many um, brick and mortar retailers we used to have. So there's a whole range of different challenges there that are you know are, are relatively similar. But then I think it's really important that each town needs to look at what some of the the broader challenges that building owners face. So again, going back to the warehouse precinct, what we looked at there was we know that there's these in these building specific challenges that are relatively consistent for lots of people but there's a whole lot of sort of macro issues that were also stopping or making it more difficult for people to resolve those building specific issues and as i said for us there it was things like the overarching zoning wasn't enabling the the right types of businesses to go in there yeah we had in that area for example there was a, a it was, called, it was like a large-scale retail. So they'd envisaged that businesses like Briscoe's and the warehouse would move in there. And the minimum floor size that they had for retail, only two buildings in the entire area were big enough to do that. So anyone else that wanted to do anything related wow. to retail had to get a consent. Um, and also some of the definitions of what the activities were. I remember sitting down with one of the guys and the planners were saying, well, this is retail. And the guy was like, well, it's not really retail. It's different than your traditional retail. I couldn't afford to be on George Street anyway. So why won't you let me go somewhere else? So, you know, being involved in those conversations was really interesting. But again, it's looking at those big issues. What's stopping people moving into that part of town? And the key with saving the town is we encourage people not to look at building by building. It's to look collectively at areas because that's where you get your biggest bang for buck. Is figuring out how can we change the the ecosystem if you like for that entire area and that's definitely what we saw with Dunedin is once you solve some of those overarching issues then you didn't have to worry about the building by building because they were taking care of themselves so you kind of create the right environment create the right incentives and that's something you know that we also did was put the right types of targeted incentives in place And actually people, you know, it's almost like build it and they will come. If you create the right environment, actually it's surprising how much we saw at a time when, you know, it was just after the sort of last global financial crisis that we're doing a lot of this work. I remember sitting in consultation, people saying there's no way any of this is going to work. We love the idea, but it's just not the right time. But, yeah, you know, huge amounts of growth happened at a time we would not have expected it. People were investing at a time when there was so much uncertainty, but it paid off. And I think that's just because you create the right environment and you'll be surprised at how much people will actually do.
0: I'm guessing that with this approach, you create a sense of community among people working with heritage buildings and the group dynamic evolves as a result.
1: There definitely is. Uh, that was one of the things that I've seen in a number of places. Is, um, it's almost like creating, um, creating a community of people that you know, can work together. In that area, we were really lucky because we had um people that started working on their buildings together with each other. And you know, some of the people, you know, they weren't just an owner of a building. They had another skill as well outside of that, which might be that they were an engineer or they were a steel worker or they were a cabinet maker. And my role I found was a lot was connecting them together, um and they would you know then go off and start working on projects together or you know doing some deals between each other to help each other out and um so it's it's creating that you know creating a sense of community there in that area it didn't even have a name like it's it's not known as the warehouse precinct until we called it that like it it never really had a name, but giving it a distinct identity also started creating that sense of community. Um, we were lucky there, definitely, that you, you had building owners that wanted to work together, um, you know, which definitely helped, but you you, know, you can sort of create that. It's interesting, at the time we were looking at that area, there was another area we approached. Basically, we sent out um, letters to all of the people in both those areas and said, hey, we're looking to work more collaboratively with this area, because they were two sort of down-at-heel type areas. And at the time, I think we got about responses from about 60% of the people in the warehouse precinct. Over time, more of those came on board as they saw some deliverables that were happening, seeing some things, you know, and you'd often get owners talking to each other and saying, oh, you know, it's okay to talk to council now, they're on your side, you know, like it takes a bit of time. The other area, not one person responded. And if you look at those two areas today, warehouse precinct absolutely thriving. The other one, half the buildings have been demolished and the other half are empty. So to me, it's kind of that whole thing about creating that sense of community, having people that are willing to work together, but there's others that can help to create that vibe as well.
0: Are there any examples of how heritage buildings have gone from absolute no-hopers to thriving, economically successful assets, those really dramatic before and after stories? There's a few, like certainly from
1: my experience in Dunedin that I can think of um but you you see them around the country i I can think of like a great example down in Dunedin where again two very different uh so two very similar buildings in two different parts of town, one in the warehouse precinct and and one closer to the um c b d and about the same time uh we had you know sort of people looking at both of those buildings. One ended up getting demolished because they just decided it was too hard. The other one, which was probably in a much worse condition, actually, is now a very, very successful cafe and oh. um, absolutely pumping. Um, and to me, that just kind of showed that there's a number of factors that come into it. One is, you know, in, this, in this case, it was the worst. The building in the worst condition and the building in the, wor- the at the time, the worst location, was the one that didn't get saved. And it was actually interesting for me as well because it was one of those cases where the owner that had that building was certainly not as wealthy as the person that owned the other building. Um, you know, it wasn't a case that they didn't have the money to put into it. It was a case that they didn't have the willingness to do the work to look at the different options. To them, it was just easier to bowl it and put up a car park and make money off that. Um, and the unfortunate thing, I think, that comes from that is losing a building like that, and and often, you know, the, the cost of building something new in its place is just too high, is that it's the, the kind of the knock-on impact to other buildings in the area, is that you as you start losing buildings and losing that kind of sense of character across an area, it starts, you know, really starting to run the rest of the area down. So it's a case of trying to convince people not to make really selfish decisions as well. Because, you know, in that case, you stopped getting the foot traffic into the other area as more buildings started getting demolished as well. So the last businesses that were remaining were finding it tougher and tougher because the only foot traffic they were getting was people walking to and from their car each day. There was no one just calling in because they'd been at the business next door. So it's it's really about, you know, I think there's things across the country where I've seen buildings that I would have thought, yeah, and I've stood in some of them with colleagues and thought, this is the worst condition building I've ever been in and I really don't even feel safe in here. And it's really, they've been absolutely transformed. And it's because the owners have had a strong willingness to do it. They've they've reached out, they've worked collaboratively with other people, but they've also just had a vision. You know, like they, they've been able to see through the piles of pigeon poo or whatever it, you know, the leaking gutters, the holes in the floors, and look at it and think, actually, there's absolutely something cool I could do with this building. And often that is... It's been things that even I've been like, huh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like, I wouldn't have looked at this building and thought, oh, that would work really well as X. But they've had that vision or they've taken that advice from someone else and they've found a way to work them. And I think that's they're always the most satisfying cases, I think, where you see those buildings that you're like, you know, oh, I'm sure that's just going to be demolished. Like, it just looks so bad. Like, yeah, you know, there's no way that anyone could do something with that. And we had plenty of those in Dunedin that you know, we ended up with you know, a new owner would take it on and they'd come up with a different idea and they would bring it back. And, and often it was, it was a lot more cosmetic than you thought, you know, the things were. Some of them were, you know, significantly damaged over time, but they, they're able to be bought back. And, you know, those people have gone and then moved on to other buildings and done other buildings. So it hasn't bankrupted them in doing it. So I think, you know, there, there's a lot more positivity out than there is actually
0: negativity. You've probably touched on this, Glenn, but what do you say to those owners or potential owners who look at heritage buildings and see only problems? I'd say talk to other people. Um, one of the things I always like to do
1: there was it, it's all very well coming to Council or to Heritage New Zealand and for us to tell people, oh, it's easy to do it. You can do it. You know, it's not going to be that expensive. Of course, it you know, it's going to be expensive. It, you know, nothing in construction, whether new or old, is cheap to do it. What I used to like to do was say, hey, I can tell you all of these things, I can show you the ways to do this more simply, I can make our end of the, the equation as easy as possible, I can provide you with some financial incentives to do it, that's that package, but the most important thing I'm going to tell you to do is go and talk to X person, because they have a building that's very similar and they've just done it up or they've done something with it, um, have a chat to them, they'll tell you you know, what the real deal is but they'll also help you start thinking about what other things to avoid um, you know, and what the potential is for those buildings um, because you, know, you do have people out there who are very imaginative and creative with what they can do, so I'd always like to get them to do that. Now the other thing that we spent quite a bit of time doing down there was trying to encourage people who owned buildings but Either didn't have the means to do something with them, or didn't have the vision. Was encouraging them to sell those buildings, um, and we were quite successful in um, helping them. Sometimes it was me matching. You know, someone would come and say, oh, "I'm looking for this type of building," and I think, "Ah, oh, such and such has that building, and they can't do anything with it. I wonder if they'd be willing to sell, and then put those people in contact with each other." Um, Sometimes it was, you know, I can remember a couple of times writing. There was one building in particular that I felt it wasn't going to last another winter, basically. Um, it was that bad. And they'd been approached a few times and hadn't been willing to sell. And in the end, I wrote them a, a very grovely email and said, I'm begging you to sell your building because if, if your building is lost, you know, because it's in such a bad condition it will need to be demolished, there's no way I could feasibly see that anyone could ever rebuild on that site because of its location, how small it was, it was um, part of a, an integrated facade that had been split up, it was just going to become the worst gap and nothing could happen with that site really in future. And they ended up accepting an offer. Now, I don't know whether my grovely email had anything to do with it, but it's a space I wasn't unhappy to get into. Because the, the thing that I always try to impress on people is, while you might not have the ability to do this, someone else might. And if this building is lost, it is lost forever. That's it, it's gone. So, you know, while it might not be, you know, exactly what you'd hoped when you bought that building, sometimes just, Getting out of that situation and having someone else take it on is going to be the best outcome. Um, so, and you know, it leads to some very interesting conversations over time. But it also helped in that you then got owners who were more like-minded, owning buildings in the same area. Going back to that original conversation around creating that community, um, and, you know, so it was almost like a matchmaking service between. I had a list of buildings and um, who was likely to do what with them and a list of people who would constantly come in and say, hey, I'm looking for such and such, any ideas, and I could point them off in the right direction. They wouldn't always manage to secure them, but I think in the end, out of 16 buildings that we had on our list,
0: there was only two at the end of it that hadn't changed hands. Wow. Glenn, in your opinion... Can all heritage buildings be saved and can all enjoy a second life?
1: So many of the buildings that we worked on there, um, I was really surprised at how a little bit earlier intervention would have saved those buildings. So one of the ones I just talked about in terms of um, you know begging the owner to sell it, when we finally got that changed hands, um, I was helping the owner out at the weekends actually. Um, because I felt so guilty about the fact that I had encouraged him to buy this building because it was in such a bad such a bad condition that I gave up a few weekends to work with him and help him demolish out some of the interior um, but what we found through that because it was just you know the floors were rotted out it was barely structural well it wasn 't structurally sound um, it, it was in such a bad condition, and you know, we knew that it hadn 't been tenanted for over twenty years, but when we, um, when he got up on the roof and looked at it, it was really one issue that was causing so much damage to that building is that it had a box gutter and something had blocked the gutters. Now, because it was four stories high and in a really difficult place, no one had ever gone up and checked those gutters. So as a result, that water had basically been streaming through the building for 20 years, causing all that rot. And so it's just it was a reminder to us of how some really simple things, some simple interventions can often save those buildings. So it's about even if you can't do that big piece of work to do a full um, reuse of the building now, actually some really basic maintenance work, some really basic um, strengthening work could save that building so that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whenever it is, when the right conditions are there, that someone else still has that opportunity to use that building um, and do something special with it. Because you know, what we see in too many places, particularly in smaller towns where there isn't the kind of money to to invest, is that the building will be demolished and it will be too expensive to build something new. And so you just get a blank Space you know, the, and in some places they 'll become parking lots in other places they 'll just remain empty for a long time, and you end up losing all those great little tenants um, and the little quirky interesting businesses that can 't afford to pay the big rents to be in the you know, the brand new big expensive building so a lot of it you know, we were also talking about down there was make sure that you 're doing enough to just even put those buildings into a holding pattern. And it might only be a couple of years before the right thing comes along. But as I said, once you've lost it, you've lost it for good. Um, And and it can just have such negative impacts on the rest of the area around it, particularly if you're trying to do something in a collective sense that create a really cool area. You don't want to lose certain buildings. And so you've got to be quite um, nimble in terms of the way you approach those. So I say... Yeah, I see there's very few that can't be saved And yes, it might not necessarily be economic to do it now But you find the right tenant That might tenant might be four or five years away But you find the right tenant and it will be economic to do it Or the conditions in that area improve so much That suddenly there's a demand for that space And that's exactly what we had in the warehouse precinct You know, The first things that started going in were apartments then you had a few smaller businesses starting to go in as the area sort of generated its own life buildings that even I thought, oh, there's no way we're going to be able to you know, find a viable use for that. Suddenly that use that use came to us because other things had changed in that area. So that's where that kind of putting things into a holding pattern, letting them get to a point where you can get the right growth, the right return, you know, the, the yeah, the, the lease rates changed radically in that area and all of a sudden you know you could afford to do something so I think yes just about everything can be saved it's just a question of time and money people focus on the money but I think sometimes it's the time and creating the right conditions that's actually the most
0: important part of that. Heritage has played a big part in your professional career how did you get into this field? Oh, it's it's a bit of a strange one. You
1: know, you you sometimes think life has um, a a way of leading you in the direction that you, you know, it leads you to something that you didn't necessarily um, expect, but you're supposed to be in. So growing up, I was crazy about being an architect. Like, that's that's what I wanted. But unfortunately, at high school, I had um, a, a rather uninspiring tech drawing teacher who who really led me away from, from architecture. Um, and it's interesting that one of my colleagues that I work with now, we actually went to school together and had exactly the same tech drawing teacher and the exact same experience. So um, you know, we were both scared away from it. So when I got to university, I started doing lots of um, history and anthropology. I'd also been always been keen on history. Started out thinking, oh, maybe I'll go into archaeology. That sort of fell away. And I um, the people I wanted to do um, further research under, they were on leave, so I ended up doing politics and that's um, where I went with my PhD. But at the end of that, I was living in um, a mix of half the year in New Zealand, half the year in Russia. I came home the last time, just thought, I really want to do something different because the where I'm headed isn't right. Um, so I started working for the Department of Conservation, doing just some you know, sort of outreach um, stuff and they there was a heritage job that came up and I at the time I was like geez I didn't even know that um that doc did heritage um and so I jumped at that job got it and from there sort of just ended up heading back down that um you know back into the heritage field and I look at it now and I think you know like in some respects you know, at the time when I was in engineering, I thought, geez, I've got my perfect job. You know, like I get to work on, you know, architectural stuff. There was archaeology, um, there was history, there was, um, you know, customer sort of focus stuff. It was all the things I loved came together in one. Um, so I, I feel very blessed that life has led me back into heritage. And I think I'm happier in the heritage sector than I would have been as an architect.
0: Saving the Town has obviously had a life before Heritage New Zealand. Can you tell us a bit about where you were before coming to Heritage New Zealand, where this document started, and what you do for Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Taonga now? Uh, So
1: I uh, used to work for Dunedin City Council. I was down there for seven years, between 2009 and 2016. When I uh, went to leave there and go overseas, I was actually approached by Heritage New Zealand um, to say, would you consider putting um, all of the learnings that you've had from the time in Dunedin uh, into a document, which is really where the genesis of this document was. And I did a bit of work on that while I was uh, living overseas. And then it's something that um, when I came back to New Zealand, I was lucky enough to actually uh, get a full-time job here at Heritage New Zealand as uh, Director Organisational Development. And um, one of the things, as I said, let's pick up that piece of work because it's um, even more relevant than it's ever been. And so our team's been working on that for the last year or so to pull it all together into a final document. Uh, Really excited to see how the public respond to it.
0: Glenn, it's been great learning more about saving the town and hearing about your passion for heritage and the many things you've learned over the years about restoring and repurposing heritage buildings. Many of these places are enjoying a second economic life, and that can only be good for their future. Thanks very much for your time. Heritage buildings can present great challenges, but also great opportunities. In future episodes I'll be talking to some of the people whose heritage projects are featured in Saving the Town. Often these incorporate a number of buildings at town or area level. The people involved for these initiatives really have skin in the heritage game, having invested their own resources and something of themselves in a wide range of projects all over New Zealand. I'm really looking forward to talking to them. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out Saving the Town for yourself, you can visit heritage.org.nz. Until next time, from me, John O'Hare. Matewa.